Father, we come, Lord, with expectation to hear you speak to us now through Jill. Now, thank you for the work that she's put into this message. We thank you for your leading and your guiding her as she's prepared. So open our hearts to receive. Open our minds to understand, our ears to hear, and our spirits to be led by you at this time. Thank you, Father. Amen. Thank you, my darling. So it's just been such a wonderful morning already. The Holy Spirit's just been so present on us and just pray that it continues. We've been doing a series on the parables and one of the most influential stories told by Jesus Christ is the parable of the Good Samaritan. Jesus recounted the parable to an expert lawyer who, wanting to test Jesus, had asked, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus didn't answer his question. He responded with a question. And Jesus responded by asking, What is written in the law? How do you read it? The man answered, referring to Deuteronomy 6.5 and Leviticus 19.18, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus then promised, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Very simple. Do this and you will live. The lawyer knew. The man, wanting to justify himself, replied, And who is my neighbor? Definitely sounds like a lawyer trick, doesn't it? He wanted to justify himself. And to be justified is to be saved. It's just as if I've never sinned. That's what it means to be justified. And it also means to be saved to inherit eternal life. We are justified by faith. Romans 3 and 28 says, For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. We can't earn our salvation. We are not justified by being good. We're justified by faith. The lawyer, desiring to justify himself, wants to achieve eternal life for himself by his works apart from God. That's why he asks, what must I do? How many of us fall into this trap of thinking, what must I do for God? So in answer to the man's questions, Jesus told the parable of the Good Samaritan. So here we have it in the book of Luke, chapter 10 and verses 30 to 35. Jesus replied, 
a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Now, it seems like a pretty simple story. A child can understand it. We've told this to our children in, in our homes, in our Bible studies, in our kids' ministries. So the priest went by, and the Levite went by, but the Samaritan came, and he had compassion, and he helped the man. And he didn't just bind him up. He put him on his horse, and he took him to the inn, and he stayed with him overnight, and he, bound, he paid for everything. And oh, this is a good person. So you're beginning to sort of understand who is my neighbor. So it sounds like done and dusted. But Jesus often spoke in parables because each had a deeper meaning, understood only by those who have, as it says in Matthew 13, verse 9, ears to hear. Knowing this principle invites us to reflect on the symbolic message of the Good Samaritan, in light of the gospel of Jesus Christ, this masterful story brilliantly encapsulates the plan of salvation in ways we might not have noticed. Did you ever think, reading through, knowing this parable so well, that it was actually about a plan of salvation, not just being a good neighbor? It testifies of Christ. It teaches the plan of salvation the Savior's atoning love, and our journey towards inheriting eternal life. So it's a bit more than, than we expected when we first looked at it, isn't it? So let's examine parts of the story. Amen. In Hebrew, the word Adam means man or mankind. So in this story, the man or the victim represents all of us. It's about mankind. From Jerusalem, Jesus depicts the person going down, not from any ordinary place, but from Jerusalem. This was the holy city, and Jesus' followers would have seen this as suggesting the person had come down from the presence of God to Jericho. Jericho would readily be identified as the world. It was below sea level, so the man was going down, perhaps suggesting the fall of man, which began with the man, Adam. 
Are you seeing the journey? Robbers. These represent the devil and his evil spirits. Jesus came to give us life and life in abundance, but the devil came to rob, kill, and destroy. So there are robbers that we will face on our journey. They stripped him. Interestingly, early Christians, such as Augustine, saw the loss of the traveler's garment as a symbol of mankind's loss of immorality and incorruptibility, of being stripped of the grace of God. When we're going down into the world, we're walking away from the grace of God. Half dead. This one fascinates me. This alludes to the first and second deaths. The man has fallen into sin and suffered the first death, separation from God. That's what sin is, becoming mortal. But the second death, permanent separation from God, when we leave our earthly bodies, this could still be averted. We still have the opportunity to give our lives, to commit ourselves to Christ. And then we don't suffer the second death. We don't end up in that fiery furnace, in that lake of fire. That's the second death. It can be averted. We come to the priest. This could be a dig at some of the religious leaders of the time, but it's much, much more than that. The priest saw him and did nothing. Priests were generally wealthy, and the priest would not be walking 18 miles from Jerusalem, where he worked and had been ministering, to Jericho, where he probably lived. He would be riding. He could well have transported the man to help. But the priest had a special problem. If the wounded man was a law-abiding Jew, he would have been responsible to reach out and help him. But he was unconscious, and he could have been someone Jews were prevented from mixing with, someone from a different racial or ethnic group. Makes you think, doesn't it? The man could also be dead, in which case the priest would become ceremonially unclean, and so would all his family and all his servants. After deciding his ceremonial purity was too important to risk, he turned aside and went on his way. Do we sometimes think we're too holy to mess with people in the world? Early Christian commentators also saw the priest as symbolizing the law of Moses, and the law would be unable to save. Next we come to the Levite. So the Levites functioned in the temple as assistants to the priests. So they were below the priests. He probably knew the priest was ahead of him on the road. And if the priest did nothing, 
the Levite could pass by with a clear conscience. Did he think he understood the law better than the priest? That would be presumptuous. No, nope, priest didn't do anything, therefore I don't have to. Do we use that? What about the Samaritan? Here, the parable assumes the wounded man to be a Jew. It would have been acceptable to the audience if Jesus had told the story of a good Jew helping a wounded Samaritan, because Samaritans were just, you know, the enemy. So a good Jew, gosh, you know, he'd really risked everything to help a Samaritan. The Jewish audience may have been able to praise the good Jew, even though he helped a hated Samaritan. But it's a different matter to tell a story about a good Samaritan who helped a wounded Jew, especially when a priest and a Levite failed to turn aside and help the unconscious stranger. Jesus really can get the knife in, can't he? So thus Jesus makes an additional point that to love one's neighbor involves showing care and compassion even to those we would not normally have anything to do with. Maybe we can just pause a minute and think about that. And to make it even more challenging, in Luke 6 verse 27, Jesus actually commanded us, it wasn't a suggestion, commanded us to love our enemies. Shall we, shall we move on quickly? It's getting a little bit uncomfortable. Compassion. Unlike the two travelers before him, the Samaritan is moved by compassion. There was no compassion from the priest or the Levite. They just weighed things up and moved on. The Samaritan was moved by compassion. And he is a depiction of Christ. And compassion speaks of the pure love of Christ. Compassion reaches beyond the requirements of any law. Bound up his wounds. In Luke chapter 4 and verse 18, Jesus stood up in the synagogue and quoted from the prophet Isaiah verse 61 and 18, where he declared he'd been sent to bind up the brokenhearted. You remember that? We have Isaiah passage, and Jesus stood up in the synagogue, and he quoted the whole passage. Part of it was to bind up the brokenhearted, and then he said, and today this has been fulfilled in your presence. So here the good Samaritan is binding up the wounds. Oil and wine. Oil would have been used to clean the wound and wine to disinfect it. We see the oil as an anointing oil, symbolizing the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. It's a healing gift. And we see the wine as the blood of Jesus, as Cliff was sharing with us earlier. The atoning blood of Jesus washing away our sins. Oil and wine on our wounds. 
set him on his own animal. This is in direct contrast to the priest, who would have been riding and could easily have transported the injured man. Jesus' listeners would also have been aware that the Samaritan risked his life transporting the man to an inn in Jewish territory. He should have offloaded the man at the edge of Jericho and disappeared. A Samaritan would not be safe in a Jewish town with a wounded Jew on the back of his animal. Took care of him. The Samaritan didn't just turn the man over to the innkeeper, but risked his life to stay the night and care for him personally. He's in enemy territory, but he stayed. Two denarii. This would have covered the bill for food and lodging for a week, maybe even two. At that time, any lodger in a commercial inn who could not pay his bill risked being sold as a slave by the innkeeper. This victim had nothing, not even his clothes. The Samaritan was obliged to make a down payment and pledge himself to settle the final bill. The overlooked reality of the Samaritan's final act is that he risks his life to care for a man in a Jewish inn. Without such an extraordinary effort, he might as well have left the man to die alone on the side of the road. When I come back, Remember we're talking about salvation, we're talking about this journey, we're talking about meeting Christ, being anointed with the oil of the Holy Spirit, receiving the shed blood of Jesus for our sins. When I come back, this is an allusion to Christ's second coming. He will return and we will be judged. In this parable, the Samaritan extends a costly demonstration of unexpected love to the wounded man. And in the process, Jesus again demonstrates the life-changing power of costly love that would climax at the cross. The dialogue between Jesus and the lawyer concluded. So we reading from verses 36 and 37. So he challenges the lawyer now. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among robbers? The lawyer answers, he said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. It's not about the law, it's about love. The lawyer's question, who is my neighbor, is not answered. Instead, Jesus reflects on the larger question, to whom must I become a neighbor? And the answer being, anyone in need. At great cost, the Samaritan became a neighbor to the wounded man. On hearing the story, the lawyer had a chance to see that he cannot 
justify himself. That is, earn eternal life. Because what he has challenged to do is beyond his capacity. Eternal life is a free gift. You don't earn it, you don't work for it, you don't do things. At the same time, all readers of the parable, from its inception to now, are given a blueprint of how to live and love on our journey of faith. So I hope that was a little bit different and you maybe learned something. And because we want to get over to Montpelier and start helping, you have one question today, not four. Can you just discuss what you've learned from this morning's teaching? And so those of you that are live streaming now, we will close the live stream and you'll be able to chat through that question with the rest of your fellows on the Zoom. So do enjoy your conversations around the table. <laughs>